Welcome to another edition of the History of Networking at the Network Collective. Today, we're talking to Tony Lee about the history of hardware-based forwarding architectures, specifically the Cisco Silicon switching engine. So, Tony, last time you were here, you talked to us about the origins of BGP. You know, I tried to get Yakov to come on, but he's so retired, he doesn't want to talk to me anymore. What about that? <laughs> Does that have anything to do with retirement, Russ? It may not. <laughs> but that's okay. So, this time we want to talk about the MGS. This is Nightmare Land. The AGS Plus. <laughs> And the origins of the SSE, which I think actually came out in the 7000, right? Is that correct? It didn't start with the MGA. That's correct. Okay. So why don't we start there and, uh, you know, just uh, move forward and I can ask silly questions and Jordan can be quiet and... <laughs> Donald will nod his head. Donald will nod his head. <laughs> yeah, so start at the beginning. Okay. Well, uh, probably starting in the early beginning... Um, Early routers were made with simple processors and simple bus-based architectures. And as you might imagine, they were somewhat performance limited. Uh, the bus was a constraint because we had some very primitive buses, not a lot of IO bandwidth. Um, and then the CPUs were equally constraining. Uh, so one of the things that people did was to work to improve both. Um, Probably the first big interesting change uh, was what Cisco did to add a processor onto a line card to assist with forwarding. Okay, and so let's, back, was, let's actually back up one second, Tony. Sorry. So these processors, they were risk-based processors, right? Is that correct? No. Oh, prior were, to this? Okay. I'm, I'm going farther back, okay? Okay. So, the original Cisco processor was a Motorola 68K. Right, 68K. And then the the back the bus was actually strung wires in the case of the AGS Plus and the AGS, well, right? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm backing up farther than that, okay? Okay. The original bus is a, was a multi-bus, okay? Okay. And um, so that was insufficient. So the first bump that Cisco did was to add a ALU, arithmetic logic unit, which is called, basically it's a DSP chip. Um, and that became the MCI line card. Okay. And that, that chip, that ALU, was actually a very long instruction word microprocessor. And it had some interesting capabilities in that it actually issued multiple operations in the same instruction cycle. So it could actually do some funky, funky things with doing an add and doing a move and doing several ops internal to the hardware at the same time. Okay, so was this primarily used, this wasn't used to process two packets, it was more used to process multiple parts of the header, that type of thing, right? Or to pull the packet, right. push it at the same time into memory. It, it gave you parallelism in the operations, which actually allowed you to process the packet faster right. and get it through the system quicker. Okay, so that was the MCI, and that's what got Cisco up to doing Ethernet line rate very quickly. And that was a huge marketing win for Cisco. Now, the next problem that they had was the bus bandwidth, because the multibus was very, very constraining. 
And if you weren't switching on between two interfaces on the same MCI line card, you had to hit the bus. So from there, they added uh, what was called the D bus, which was a 500 megabit bus on the AGS Plus. And that allowed you to use uh, an ALU to switch between two interfaces on the D bus. Okay. But and that, that, only got was, that was the parallel wiring that we all had to plug in to make the AGS Plus in between the line cards. Is that correct? No, you didn't. The, the things that you're plugging in, you remember plugging in and, and scraping your knuckles on? Yes. Those, <laughs> those were the connectors between the line cards and the external connectors on the back of the chassis. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so those were just because Cisco hadn't figured out how to build a better card cage. <laughs> okay. In, in fact, the only logical change between the AGS Plus and the 7000 was to rebuild all of the cards and get rid of those cables. Right. I remember that the AGS Plus was basically... I'm sorry, the 7000 was basically logically exactly like the AGS Plus. When we went and looked at how to troubleshoot it and the back plane, back pressure, stuff like that, it was all the same thing. It was just, you know, formatted differently, essentially, physically. Yeah, the, the marching orders for the 7000 were do not change anything except the hardware layout. So all the rest of the system is almost entirely the same. Why would they keep it the same there? Um, so there was a great deal of fear about second system syndrome. Are you familiar with that? That's where an engineering organization starts adding features and ends up slipping things because they've added features. And we were in a big fight with Wellfleet, and it was absolutely important that we get this thing out to the market on, on time. And so people just didn't want us to mess around adding features. Um, you know, the real competition that we had with Wellfleet was that our hardware was behind. Uh, software, we were actually well ahead. Um, that wasn't a problem. But the, those cables that Russ mentioned were a big sales hit. Plus the uh, so, plug-in boot registers. <laughs> well, those actually stuck around. I know, I know, for far too long. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, uh, so with the AGS Plus and 7000, we found that we could only do about 70,000 packets per second before the ALU ran out of steam. And in looking at the forwarding path, it became very clear that the IP lookup that we were doing was actually one of the constraints in the forwarding path that was a significant hit. So uh, from there, a couple of guys, and notably Bruce Sherry and Bruce Wilford, had the bright idea of building hardware acceleration for this. Um, and their idea was to do a tree lookup in hardware. And they decided to do something that was relatively simple for them to build. Now, we were not given charter to build an ASIC, um, nobody would believe that we actually could ever afford that or that we would ever need that. So we were given charter to spend a whopping $2 million 
and do an FPGA implementation. Uh, so we ended up using one Altera and two Xilinx chips. And what we ended up implementing was a trinary tree that did a byte level compare. If you, if the comparison was less than, you went left. If you went, it was greater than, you went right. And if there was a match, you went down. So this very is very different. Yeah, is this a was it was it implemented as a radia or as a how was it implemented as a J or was it just strictly it was just binary right when you get to the bottom you just get to the bottom you've hit a match or you've not correct right you hit if you hit a match then you end up going down and there is a node there that records either a partial result and continues mapping okay uh, continues searching or if it's the final result it goes off and actually ships the packet. Very simple. Yeah. So Bruce Wolford ended up doing the microcode. Dave Chung ended up building the hardware. He was the board designer. And then I ended up doing the system software, taking the FIB and mapping that into the hardware. Um, from that result, we were able to get upwards around to 120,000 packets per second. And then we found out that the ALU ran out of steam because it was just now spending all of its time shuffling buffers around. So it was very clear that we had been successful. We had actually given good proof of concept that we could actually do packet forwarding at high rate. And what was the real next step was to put it into an ASIC. Unfortunately, Cisco management uh, decided in their infinite wisdom that ASICs were never going to be useful and we should do everything with CPUs. <laughs> so, so hence fast cache and increasing the speed at which you can do interrupt driven switching effectively. Yeah, <laughs> it was not pretty. Okay. <laughs> Um, that eventually, of course, got corrected, and now everyone does everything in ASICs, and all of high-end forwarding has been in ASICs for a very long time, and is second only to Intel and AMD's CPU processing in uh, silicon technology. So, um, probably the other fun thing about the SSE that few people know about is that we actually also pioneered switching on variable length fields. Uh, oh, we actually had a, ASIC or in the FPGA at that time. In the FPGA, we actually had a hook in there for dealing with variable length addresses. Um, this was primarily due to switching CLNP. I was going to uh, say the yeah, NSAP. Yeah, yeah. The NSAP on CLNP uh, starts out with a length field, and then the address length is encoded in that. And so you have to figure out how to do your lookup and you have to use the length of that address field as a constraint. So there was a hook inside of the hardware where we could load it to tell, how, tell the hardware how long the address field actually was, and then it would run off and do its search, and if we ran out of address bits, it actually some, an exception would go off and we would terminate the search. So we so were actually able to... Yeah, that was based on the actual length of the address that was encoded in the CLNP. Yep. Right? 
Yeah. And so we were able to actually switch CLNP for the first time at wire rate. Wow, that's really cool. Now, the interesting thing is back in those days, you not only had to switch CLNP, but you also had to switch IPX, Apple Talk, IP, basically everything, right? So the FPGA, you actually have to code it to, to, to switch basically everything, or are you just punting to software for everything else? Well, so this is an interesting conundrum because we could do all sorts of interesting things here. Um, yes, we could do lots of different kinds of lookups. Um, we implemented uh, many of the ones you just mentioned in, uh, in the SSE, um, including source route bridging, um, so token ring. If you <laughs> wanted to do token ring fast, we could help with that. Um, so it was a, a very flexible solution uh, because it was completely software-driven and microcode-driven on the ALU. Interesting. So, yeah, so the origin, you know, when we were in that world of um, multi-protocol switching before people just went to all IPv4, and now, you know, we have IPv6 and V4 molded or merged in there, and people are trying to update the the ASICs. If we just stuck with FPGAs, we wouldn't have this problem. <laughs> Everything would still be doable. <laughs> if we stuck with FPGAs, um, we wouldn't be filling the pipes, so that would be a problem. <laughs> Sure. Advantages and disadvantages. I know. <laughs> so we need the, the SSC, performance. Yep, you need the performance. So the SSC started out as a blade that slid into the 7000, which had the bus actually mounted on the back with a different chassis. How did it develop from there? So we, we start with this SSC, which is a couple of, um, like you said, some FPGA stuff. And so you went to the ASIC. How did that transition happen? So you actually designed the first ASIC once you did the proof of concept in the FPGA? Is that kind of the process? Well, again, Cisco management decided that this was a bad idea and they were going to go off and use CPUs for doing switching. And so if you take a look at the 7500, um, most of those are CPU-based switching. Right. Well, the VIP card, right? Yeah. And so that didn't work out so well. And when we got, by the time we got to BFR, we started building ASICs. So the 7200 VIP card, from what I remember, is basically a, um, or the 7500 VIP card is basically a little 7200 sliced onto it with its own software-based switching path. So every time you would add a VIP or a line card, you would end up adding more processing power in order just to switch those packets locally. But it was on a GPU. They were still using the Motorola RISC or the Motorola stuff at that time, right? The switch to Intel-based processors and ASICs hadn't happened and didn't happen for a while yet. Is that correct? Yeah, there was a big problem because everything that Cisco had done was on big Indian processors. Yeah, I was going to so say. moving to Intel was a real problem. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. you have all your memory organized and everything based on big Indian. And somehow or another, you got to translate between the two. And you're trying to do it while you're switching between line cards. Because obviously, if you have one line card that's big Indian and another that's little Indian, you know, you carry, you've got to do translation someplace. And it's a real mess to figure out. It really causes heartache in the lookups and stuff like that. So... When you say the software-based switching didn't work out, um, so I was in TAC at the time when FastCache, I, I always call it the collapse of FastCache, the, fa the failure of FastCache. And I remember the heartache 
of taking those cases. So kind of describe maybe a little bit what happened there might be useful for listeners to understand a little bit about what was going on in that space and what drove the move towards um, ASICs eventually. Okay, well, the first thing that Cisco did trying to accelerate software forwarding was to implement a cache of IP lookups. And they did so by caching slash 32 entries, so host entries. And they populated that cache slowly and, of course, quickly filled up DRAM to do it. But that actually provided a great deal of acceleration uh, in some very simple circumstances. Um, we tried doing that for a long time, except every time we got a wrap change, you'd have to blow the cache and start over. Um, and in the, the enterprise reason, network. Yeah, the reason for that is, is that if you're caching to slash 32 and you blow a slash 24 out of your routing table, it's almost impossible to go into the cache and figure out which routes in the cache are dependent on recursively or within that slash 24. So it's easier just to blow the whole sinking cache and start over. Well, you could do it, but they didn't decide to do that. They just did the simple and quick and dirty thing to start with. <laughs> uh, so we, we lived with that for a long time and worked around it. And very quickly after we started deploying things in the internet, we started getting a high degree of route flux. Uh, now, routing change in an enterprise network is pretty rare, actually. So the host cache was not a problem. But in the internet, we were quickly seeing route changes about once a second. Well, if you start blowing the, the cache once a second, um, your, your processor spends all of its time rebuilding the cache, and your switching rates really suck. So it became very clear early on that we needed to not be using a cache. Uh, so we started building a, an explicit fib out of the routing table, um, one that was a little more optimized, but it was a complete copy. And this became Cisco Express Forwarding. Right. The M-Try. <clears throat> yep. And that's what we used as the basis for populating this SSE's fib. And so that was not a binary tree, but an M-way. So you could actually look up and say the first, you know, section of the IP address is X. So I'm going to go down one of four paths or eight paths, depending on the way the M-try is built, because different hardware platforms use different M-tries um, to optimize for different things. Some have a 16-bit first hop, some have an 8-bit first hop. And there was actually a divide in the hardware sold to enterprise versus the hardware sold to service provider for a while based on the way the MTRI was built in the FIB and then populated into... Um, uh, actually, the, the first version of Ceph was built on a Radix try. Right. Well, that's correct. Yes, it was the Radix. And, and it was only when we started doing some of the ASICs that we shifted from the trinary tree from the silicon switch engine over to using the MTRI. And okay. we did that because rather than building uh, the FIB out of uh, SRAM, uh, we wanted to build it out of DRAM. And that's slower, but it's much cheaper. So we could waste more of it, um, but we did want to do a full byte lookup per address, uh, per access. So we ended up changing algorithms slightly. But the content was still the same. 
Yeah, right, right, right. But it also makes a difference in, like I said, and I, I remember there was something there about you do 16 bits at first because you think you're going to get a hit in the first 16 bits in some environments. And sometimes you got to go to the second hit and get a 24 or something like that, depending on what you're building for seems to be sticking in the back of my mind for some reason. Well, you do the first 60, 16 bits because building a table of 64K entries is not that painful in DRAM. Right. And you might as well get as much as you can at, to start with, right? Yeah, right. Because you need a lot of hits out of 16 bits in the first place, right? Right. Particularly in the internet, back when in the day when everybody was advertising slash 16s before we started the, the onrush of slash 24s. Um, right. Slash 16s got you there most of the time. Right. So. So it made sense. What is the timing here um, between, you know, software switching to FPGA to ASIC? Like just chronologically, I'm curious. Uh, let's see, Cisco started as a company in 84, started off with doing software switching. Uh, MCI card came out in 89 or 90. And then the silicon switch engine, uh, we started work on that in 92, but didn't actually ship it until 94. Um, the ASICs start, didn't start playing a role until 97. Okay. So. so there was a good three to five years where the FPGA was the fastest on the block. And then we came out with this, Sister came out with the 7200, which was, the 4500 and the 7200, now these are the old 4500 and the old 7200 were the fastest switching boxes that were available. I mean, they would beat an SSE in many cases just because they had such fast processors and they were using PCI buses and everything else that were speeding everything up. And there were so many processors in the box, but still you could overrun a 7200 at some point and shut it down. And it came to the point where Something had to be done. And I know that was part of the whole GSR play was to go back to ASICs and to rethink the ASIC situation and think about how to do it um, correctly, among other things that were involved in GSR history. So I'm kind of curious as to the decision for FPGA versus ASIC. Was it, I guess, could you go into that a bit more? Oh, at the time, um, that was very, very speculative that we could do any kind of hardware switching. Um, this was completely an experiment, and Cisco management simply wasn't willing to invest enough to do an ASIC. Um, it was thought that this was going to be very lightly used. Um, only a small percentage of customers would ever need the performance. Um, only a few people would have the routing table. The internet wasn't a big deal. In fact, the internet was largely irrelevant at that point. Um, and so this was a niche product and really didn't need a whole lot of serious investment. And there were a lot of problems to address, like variable length um, fields in CLNS, which were a big pain, right? And if you think you're gonna go out and deal with enterprise networks in those days, you have to remember that in those days, CLNS, Apple Talk, and IPX were still a big deal. We were still in the middle of, is CLNS gonna win or is IP gonna win? 
the DOD was still pushing CLNS by and large. So there were all these issues. You'd have to figure out how to design an ASIC that would do all that. And ASIC technology itself was very young in those days. And not many people were doing much with ASICs at that time. Maybe Tony can correct me here, but my understanding was that if I could build an FPGA and have some microcode to run it, it was a pretty simple matter of turning that into an ASIC at that point in time, right? Agreed. Um, but after we got the FPGA working, uh, the powers that be at Cisco decided that processors were more important. And so they made that call and you see how it turned out. <laughs> Hindsight is always twenty twenty, And we keep learning the same lessons over and over again, don't we? <laughs> Well, it, it actually was pretty obvious even then that, you know, there was going to be a processor problem. Um, processors have this ongoing problem where they do not have the I.O. bandwidth that you really want. Excuse me. So we knew that the processors weren't going to cut it, and we bought the, bought the uh, Kool-Aid anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so bring in uh, processors into present day. You know, there's there's uh, efforts like VPP and XDR and Lone's Kernel, and uh, what's the other one? GPDK. How do you feel about those efforts? Well, they are fine efforts. They are still constrained by the buses that you're working around. Uh, you know, I don't think you could build a CRS style line card using DPDK and get sufficient performance out of it. And again, that doesn't come back to processor switching speed, which is what we always hear. It's more about the buses, the bus lanes into and out of the processor because general purpose processors are designed to process things, right? They're not designed to do IO specifically. This is why you have chipsets on hard drives that do IO specifically, and that's what they do for a living and much the same with the video card. Now, my assumption in choosing FPGA, right, is the flexibility. And that's the reason why they wanted to go that way is that, you know, rather than investing in, you know, a hardware development cycle for an ASIC, getting to the end and having it not be what you wanted, an FPGA is a bit more generic, correct? In that you could modify and change. It's the experimental nature of the reason why it worked better. Yes, absolutely. If you burn an ASIC and there's a bug in your algorithm, it's three to six months to fix it. Right. For an FPGA, it's about four hours. Right. <laughs> I guess it depends on who you ask. I hear, and I don't know, because I'm definitely not an expert in this, but, you know, uh, writing code to, or microcode for FPGAs is kind of a black art. <laughs> if you get it done in four hours, it's pretty <laughs> impressive. <laughs> Well, uh, once you know the code, and we were writing this from scratch, so we knew everything that was going on. So finding a bug, you know, once once you tracked it down to where it was, fixing it was not a big deal. Okay. So that's an interesting question about, so FPGAs not only did that, but also it was also off-the-shelf hardware at that time, right? You weren't burning something new. You could just go buy FPGAs in quantity if you wanted to. That's right. Like I mentioned, we were buying from Altera and Xilinx. So this was just off the shelf stuff. Yeah. Interesting. All right, good. So any history after, so in the original development of the ASIC, did they actually start with the ASICs for like the GSR and stuff? Did they start with the work that was done on the SSC? On the SSC? 
in that area or did they just start from the ground up? I think you were involved in that work, right? In the initial ASIC work in the GSO. Uh, I was involved in some of the initial stuff. Um, basically, by that time, uh, Bruce Sherry had left the company. Bruce Wilford had left the company. Um, I was on my way out. Uh, they ended up starting over from scratch. Interesting. That often happens, but I was just curious because um, I was just thinking, you know, those initial discussions that were going on, I remember some of those discussions swirling around and, um, you know, around the GSR. I remember, um, I don't think it was the GSR, maybe it was Peter Lothberg's idea that you should be able to, I think it was actually the CSR that he said this about, walk through the room with a baseball bat and break things and it would never shut down, something like that. But I think that was the CSR, not the GSR. So, yeah. Well, that's what G that's what Peter wanted at the time. Um, he was hoping for telco grade quality. Now, I defy you to take a baseball bat to a five ESS and see it still run. <laughs> I just remember that quote. Yeah, I was like, really? You want to take a baseball bat to it? It's just going to continue working. <laughs> but what he what he was looking for was something more solid, and I can't argue dis disagree with that at all. Uh, right. Enterprise grade does not cut it when it comes to NEBS compliance. Right. And if the speeds that they were getting to, I mean, Sonnet was starting to come in. We were starting to see 40 gig, as I recall, um, at the top end on a lot of these links. And we were doing a lot of dragging a lot of di steel dial circuits for AOL and other people into the Sonnet link. So there were these huge mismatches in the speeds. So there was all this buffering and QoS issues going on. And you had to be able to switch stuff more quickly. And you just couldn't drop your fast cash. You just couldn't, you had to like actually make this stuff work for these businesses to run the way they needed to run. And also the desire was for full redundancy. So right. we wanted redundant route processors, redundancy in the fabric. Um, we had also, in, in moving to GSR, we had exhausted the capabilities of buses and had to move to a switching fabric. And that was the biggest change in the GSR. Right. Um, I remember that. And it had virtualized queues, didn't it? The GSR switching fabric, if I remember correctly. Um, you could sort of call it that. It was a scheduled, <laughs> it was a scheduled crossbar. Right. What's, the, what's the difference between a bus and a switching fabric for those people who aren't familiar with it? A bus is a set of common wires that all things have to access in parallel. And so there's only one transmitter at any given time. The switching fabric, on the other hand, allows everybody to send at the same time, assuming the receivers are all not overcommitted. So if you get the perfect alignment of everything that needs to be sent, every card can be sending into the fabric at the same time, every card can be receiving at the same time. You get a lot higher bandwidth by doing it that way which is um, what the scheduler's job is, is to try to get everybody to coordinate their sending and receiving such that you can get as much onto the fabric as you possibly can. So one way to think about it is a bus is essentially a shared ethernet segment. It's 10 base T. <laughs> yep. <laughs> For network engineers. With many wires. <laughs> With many wires. <laughs> <laughs> 
Whereas a fabric is more like uh, a spine and leaf or something like that, where you can actually have lots of people sending at the same time over multiple paths or even a full mesh, perhaps between everybody type of thing. So cool. So the scheduler, it becomes its own problem, even on the bus, right? The scheduler becomes its own issue when you get the high bandwidth, like with the cat series, with the concept of every everybody sends, everybody receives the first few bytes of the packet until they discover it's not for them. Then they shut down and, and clear their buffer type of thing. This whole scheduling issue becomes a major problem when you have multiple line cards that you're trying to send stuff between. Exactly. And after many iterations, and we came quickly to the conclusion that trying to schedule a crossbar was not working out. And since then, everybody has migrated to cloth or cloth fabrics. Within their, yes, for their fabrics internally, right? Yep. Although I've heard somebody uses toroid, is that correct? Uh, there have people, been people who have played with toroids. Um, that hasn't worked out all that well. <laughs> the error subscription rate is too high for the most part, for a toroid. I mean, it's a cool idea, but when you actually start shoving traffic at it, the traffic patterns have to be pretty well scheduled to make it work. And scheduling is very difficult, as you said, so it's, it becomes a difficult. And so, yeah, the real, real goal is to have a fabric that can do any to any. And right. a, tor a toroid necessarily, because it's not symmetric, can't really do that. Right, yeah. So now everybody listening to this is going to go have to look up the toroid and figure out what that Think looks donut. like. Think <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, imagine everyone listening. I'm going to have to go look it up. I haven't seen <laughs> architecture. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's quite an interesting um, topology, but I don't see it used in a lot of places or ever, as a matter of fact. So today where we are is we have all these... Um, commercial grade ASICs produced by different company. P4 seems to be closest to like an FPGA sort of concept, right? Um, well, Barefoot. Well, yeah, I was gonna say P4 is the language, right? Yeah, to, right. to, well, I mean, Barefoot has Tofino. Right. But it's, not, it's not just that, Cisco has UADP, right? So that's a programmable chipset as well. Um, trying to think about what else, what else is out there. I just, well, there's there's more, but that's off the top of my head. So, so, so it, it seems like it's bridging the gap, right? Like we're right. kind of getting the point where some of the ASICs have enough flexibility in them, which I know is kind of, I don't know, it seems like an oxymoron to me, a flexible ASIC, but it seems like there's enough flexibility into them with a, with a, you know, top level programming language to, to get down in them to change and add features or, or manipulate things. It sounds like we might be close to the best of both worlds. Uh, so where we've gotten to, we pretty much insisted that the ASICs be somewhat programmable from the very start. Um, that does allow us to implement some features. Turns out that there are some things that you just can't do after the silicon is actually gelled. And what, that, what those restrictions are varies from chip to chip. Uh, but if you try to, say, move half a packet, um, that's not going to work so well. Um, but generic things like mm, encapsulations or lookups, generally that's implemented in a flexible manner. Uh, oh, so I, pretty good shit. I didn't yeah, know that. I didn't realize that that's always been the case. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's always, there's always um, been some amount of microcode, right, Tony, in all of these. 
Exactly. Uh, people have tried to hard code things. They've proposed that. And for anything connected, at least with IP routing, um, we've pushed back and said no, because we've got many different line cards, lots of different encapsulations. We need a lot more flexibility. Uh, where you th see things much more hard coded is are people who are building just L2 switching chips. All they're ever doing is seeing MAC addresses, so they don't require anything too fancy. Yeah, not much changes at that level and not variable length field or anything like that. That makes sense. Yeah. So when did recycling, I mean, I know at some point we got to the point where we started recycling packets as well. I guess that started with tunneling, is that right? Like we would push it through the ASIC twice? Yeah, you have to do that. If you've got a processor that um, needs multiple passes on the packet, uh, it's easier just to recycle it. So you, you take off, for example, the tunnel header and then do an IP lookup. So one pass to realize that you need to remove the header and another pass to actually then do the forwarding. Right. I think that's kind of developed today into doing deep packet inspection and other things like that. People are using recycling for pushing it through twice to do other things. It's all a matter of how your internal architecture handles doing more work. Right. Yeah. So, cool. So that's where we are today. Um, any other comments or do you have any interesting stories about the development of the SSC that would be kind of cool to talk about? Or was it all just pretty much cut and dry, just sitting down and doing the work and off you go? Um, it was pretty cut and dry. Probably the most interesting thing is that we initially shipped it with only 512K of buffer space. <laughs> and, and that's for the entire router. Um, so we actually deployed that because we didn't have any good argument about why we shouldn't. And people were very, very unhappy with spending more money on more static RAM. Uh, so when people started seeing packet loss, they started pointing fingers. And we quickly then had a little discussion, started talking about bandwidth times RTT and ended up shipping a two megabyte version. Interesting. Uh, and from what I remember, you were still, even in those days, we were still doing switching in the ACE, in the, um, in the uh, interrupt, but it wasn't on the main processor, right? It was on the Phi chip or was it would actually still interrupting the main processor, but then doing the switch in the ASIC or in the FPGA? No, no, no. This, this, none of this was interrupt based. Okay. Um, the ALU w was in a continual polling loop and it would go around and service every interface in a polling loop and did so at a high enough rate that could keep up with line rate. Okay, interesting. Did that mean that some interfaces were more favored? No, the polling loop was set up so that it covered all interfaces sequentially. So you can literally round robin check every interface. So that would mean, though, that higher speed interfaces that could push more traffic or pull more traffic in may have more of a chance of drawing, uh, of drawing no time, not enough time to forward packets, or was it more adjusted than that? There were some adjustments because we had FDDI, 100 megabit interfaces, and the same complex with T1s at one and a half megabits. Right. But yeah. basically everything got pulled as fast as it could possibly go. Cool. 
Okay. Well, Jordan, any other questions? Nothing here. Donald? No? I'm good, yeah. You're good. <laughs> I'm good. Do you have any more funny stories you want to tell us? <laughs> Can't think of any. Oh, wow. Okay. So I guess that's it. We'll wrap it up and I call it another history of networking. Um, before we head off, though, uh, Jordan, where can people find you? Uh, sure. You can find me on Twitter at BC Jordo, occasionally on my blog, jordanmartin.net, and just about very. all the time. Yeah, very occasionally, maybe like once or twice a year. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, you can find me all the time at Network Collective, though. So. There you go. And Donald, where can people find you? You can find me at me, not you, Sharp, on Twitter. That's it. That's there's it? no there's no blog. He still he hasn't succumbed yeah, to your know. pressure, Russ. He's like, <laughs> he's We're just gonna he's just gonna resist and be difficult now. I know. He's just I think fine. I'm gonna have to run over to the office and beat him up since I know he's. Gonna <laughs> I think my blog is all the programming I do. That's my blog. <laughs> I was well, gonna say you're you're on lots of places on GitHub. <laughs> <laughs> and Tony, where can we find you? I'm easiest to find on LinkedIn. Oh. Well, there you go. That's you easy go. to find. So, and Russ, yeah. how about you, man? Where do we find you? You can find me at Rule of Not Tech, and you can find me at Network Collective all the time, right? All the time, yes, all, all the time. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks, Tony, for the great time again, and um, we'll bring you back on if we can think of something else to talk about. You have no other history than this, right? I have a hard Thank time believing guys. that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very happy to talk your ear off as much as you like. Okay, All right. Cool. Thanks so Thanks. much, Tony.